This morning I sat down with our teachers and discussion leaders, and a couple of people said, Pastor, this week you didn't, you didn't give us a scripture passage. So we weren't really prepared to sit down and discuss and talk about what's going to be taught in Sunday school. And I said, you're exactly right. I did not give you a passage of scripture. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to cover all seven of our core values. We're going to cover the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to cover the book of Ecclesiastes. And then we're going to tie in Revelation, Mission and Vision, Proverbs 31 Woman. So, I don't know if y'all kind of picked up on that. So if you're not ready, here we go. We're going to go to work. So the title of today's sermon, Smoke and Significance. And hopefully, by the end of this, y'all will understand what I'm talking about when I say smoke and significance. Our first core value, extreme hospitality. We looked at Genesis 18. Do y'all remember Abraham sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day, and these three visitors appeared off in the distance, and what did Abraham do? He got up and he sprinted, he ran, he hurried to those three visitors. And when he got there, he bowed low to the ground and he served them. He served them. And then we looked at how that tied in with John chapter 1 and talked about Jesus, the eternal Logos, coming into the world, right? And how darkness could not overcome him, how some wouldn't receive him, talking specifically about the religious leaders of the day, those who were lost in darkness, who rejected him because he challenged their authority. He challenged the status quo. He challenged it, but then it goes on and says, but to those who received him, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Extreme hospitality. So that was our first core value. See, that's the who Jesus is. It's not just what he does. It's who he is. So if that's who Jesus is, it has to be part of the DNA of our church, right? Because we said, beliefs manifest themselves as behaviors, actions, right? The second one we talked about was desperate dependency from John chapter 15, where Jesus says, I am the... That's Revelation... I'm the vine, you are the branches. And he says, apart from me, you can do a whole lot of really incredible, awesome, amazing things. No! Remember we said, you can't do anything. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's not metaphor. It's not. It's not metaphor. It's not hyperbole. Jesus isn't saying that, well, you know, apart from me, you could do some things that are okay. He's saying that apart from Christ, everything that we do turns to what? All we are is dust in the wind. It all just turns to nothing. At the end of our lives, it's burned up. It's chafe. It's gone. But I don't know if we believe that. Our third one we talked about was unity. We looked at John 17, where Jesus has this beautiful prayer. And he's praying to the Father. And he's saying, Father, the disciples, these ones that you've given me, the ones who I've saved, who I've redeemed, it's like those who you, I've not lost any of them. And I want them to be one just as you and I are one. Indivisible. Death couldn't separate Jesus from the Father. 
all of the sin and shame of the world at the cross couldn't separate Jesus from the Father, nothing can separate him. Nothing. And that's the prayer that he has. He says that he wants us, his bride, he wants Poetry Baptist Church, he wants, that's the little C, the church, and he wants the big C, the universal church, he wants us to be one. Because why? He says that's the thing that's going to be our testimony to a lost and dying world. See, if there's no difference about the things that we do and the way we live our lives and what goes on here, when people come and visit and they see this, they're just going to go, what? Same old, same old. Unity. And then as uh, Heather mentioned a second ago, I almost said Amber, Heather mentioned a minute ago, expectancy. Is that are we an expectant church? We contrasted that with entitlement, right? See, people, humanity, we're erroneously optimistic about things. You talk to a, la a lost person, what do you have hope for? What, what gets you up in the morning? Oh, I got that promotion. I got that promotion coming. I know, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to move from this area over to that nice area. I'm going to move from Oak Cliff, and then I'm going to move to this place, and then I'm going to move to, and then pretty soon I'll be in Highland Park. I'm going to be living a couple of houses down from Troy Aikman, right? Erroneously optimistic. Because even if you do, even if everything goes right, we're going to talk about this when we study Ecclesiastes, which is coming next week, not everything goes right. Not everything goes well. Even if you're doing everything right, you can still end up with a child who has cancer. You can still end up with a wife or a husband who becomes an alcoholic. Someone who gets lost in sin and falls away. Bad things happen to good people, right? And we're going to study that in Ecclesiastes. But where people who are lost are erroneously optimistic. And we look at Philippians chapter 3, and Paul was praying an expectant prayer that Jesus Christ would transform the church. He had expectancy. See, at the beginning in chapter 1, when he was talking to the Philippians, when he wrote that letter, he was praising them because they are a gospel community. He wasn't writing the letter to an individual. He wasn't saying, hey, Kevin, man, you're doing an awesome thing. Thank God for you. He wrote to the church in Philippi. And he said, because of the work that you're doing, and he talks later in chapter 3 about, I'm talking, I'm addressing you mature Christians about your unity and your fellowship in the gospel, and I have all expectancy. Why is he expectant? Because we have a God who wires that into us. Expectancy, not entitlement. And then we moved on to wisdom. We did a whole study in Proverbs, and we talked about how wisdom is about skill. That metaphor, the analogy of wisdom being like an artisan, someone who's skilled in their profession. Have you ever seen someone who's just incredibly gifted at something? Maybe it's Anita and the way that she knits things together. And you see it and you're just like, that's incredible. I couldn't do that. I'd end up with a big ball of knots. And people would be like, what is that? There's other things that I'm, I'm okay at. There's you know, people out there who are just world-class artists. And that's the picture that God paints 
of wisdom is that not, not that we, we make things like we make sculptures and we make paintings and stuff like that. That's not wisdom. It's saying that in the same way that those artisans use their craft to make beautiful things, that we have skill in the way that we live our lives. And that's not possible apart from the fear of the Lord, right? So wisdom. And we looked at Colossians 4, 2 through 6. And it said that the way that our attitude as a church is supposed to be towards outsiders, hmm, mature. We're supposed to make the most of every opportunity, right? That's wisdom. That's skill. We talked about ministry empowerment. See, because as individuals in the church, it's not about the pastor, we hire some guy to go and visit sick people and go to the hospital, preach the sermons, be at funerals, marry people, do all the administrative stuff, make sure everything's going right, everybody walks out the doors at the end of the day and we just go, well, how'd everything happen? I don't know. How'd the doors get locked up? I don't know. But that's not us, right? Everybody chips in because within the DNA of this church, there's ministry empowerment. Y'all went for a very long time without someone standing up here, right? And people had to step up. And that's what I love about this church is that I don't have to convince people that y'all got to do something. See, a lot of other churches, a lot of pastors that I know, they're like, man, I just, I'm like in there with a crowbar trying to get people out of the pews mobilizing the lady. I got to get y'all to do something. You know, if you get a lever long enough and you put the fulcrum in the right point, it's got to move and somehow they're not moving. They're not moving. People aren't doing anything. I get up there and I preach the word and I study and I came in and y'all were like, Pastor, I hope you can keep up with us. I said, I'll try. I'll give it my best. I'm trying. That's what I love about this church. Y'all are already sold out. You're bought in. Ministry empowerment. We looked at Luke 9.23 and we said that, Jesus said that if you're going to be a disciple, there's three things that have to be the identifiers of your life. You've got to deny self, you've got to pick up your cross, and that's it, right? No, then you've got to follow. So you can deny yourself, and you can pick up your cross, and like Heather was just saying a second ago, we got that start line down there. But if there's no finish line, what are you going to do? Follow Jesus where? Where did Jesus go? Where did Jesus go? He went to the cross. He set his face resolutely to Jerusalem as a church. What are we setting our face towards? What's that vision? We're going to get there. Ministry empowerment. And then we looked at Matthew 28, 16 to 20, discipleship. Jesus pursued. He won and he discipled those 11 guys. One of them, Judas, it didn't work out so well. Somebody sent me something on Facebook the other day. And they said, it said in there, it said, Judas had the best teacher in the world. Best teacher in the world. Jesus, the best leader who's ever set foot on earth. And then it went into saying, it's like, maybe the problem with you isn't your pastor. Maybe the problem with you isn't your church. Maybe the problem with you, like Judas, is you. I hope the person that sent that to me wasn't trying to tell me something. And if they were, I'm, I'm working on it. But Jesus pursued one and discipled. So what's the bride supposed to do? 
We're supposed to pursue. We're supposed to win. We're supposed to disciple. I came up with a new word because I was thinking about that. You know, those are three verbs, right? Pursue, win, disciple. And I came up with my own word. So y'all don't have to adopt this, but it's parenopal. It's pursue, win, disciple all together in one word. Parenopal. Y'all like that? I see a lot of blank faces. Y'all like, what's he talking about up there? Parenopal. It's a new word because we're going to do it all together. We're not just going to pursue people because if you pursue them, what are you going to do with them? You got to win them. You got to win them over to Christ. And how do we do that? Through extreme hospitality, through de desperate dependency, through unity, through expectancy, through wisdom, through ministry empowerment, being a visionary church. We win them over. And then through that process, you have to mature, right? You can't win them and just say, hey, you're good. You've got your insurance card. Get out of jail free, the little Monopoly guy. Put that in your, put that in your stuff. You're good. Now you can just walk away. Everything's all right. You don't have to do anything. Connor was sitting up here a minute ago. She was, uh, Heather was saying, what is it that you need to do? What do we need to do as a church? And my little boy said, serve. Man, I was like, yeah. That means Christine's doing a great job. Visionary. I got a ha out of him back there. And we have to be a visionary church, right? We have to be visionary. Like we talked last week, Robert Browning's poem. It's like when the, when the cloud kind of separates, the fog lifts for just a second, and you get a glimpse of the city and the spires. It's like, that's what inspires us. And we went into Revelation, and we looked at Jesus, that the, the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem coming down, spotless, beautiful, perfect, no walls, because the nations are going to bring their glory into New Jerusalem. It's beautiful. There's no sun because God himself is the light. It's beautiful. If you haven't read Revelation 21, read it. We also looked at Proverbs 31 a while back. That Proverbs 31 woman and all the things that she does. It's beautiful. That's what it means to be a visionary church. Do y'all realize, oftentimes I talked about this on my Wednesday evening class, is I said that so often because of Catholicism, and because of the idea of a works-based salvation, Protestants, we want to go to the other extreme. We want to go so far over. It's like, we don't really have to do anything. I've received the gift of faith by grace, right? Solo fida, faith alone. Now I don't have to do anything because doing something would be an affront to God. That's a lie. If you go into the book of Revelation... Read what Jesus has to say about every single one of those churches. He starts off virtually every one of those, and he says, I know your, I know your what? Your works, your deeds, your ergon. I know your works, and you're falling short. I'm about to take your lampstand away from you. Poetry Baptist Church, we have a lampstand, right? It's Christ. And if we're not doing the works, if we're not winning, if we're not pursuing, winning, and discipling, Jesus says, I know your works. I know your deeds. I know your ergon. What are you doing? Are y'all just getting together and singing some songs and hugging and high-fiving, and then you go home, and there's nothing about your life that looks any different from a lost person? They're getting on top of Hillary Clinton on Facebook. So are we. Some of them are getting on Trump. So are we. Some of them are passing, you know, things that are jokes, and so are we. Is that the stuff that makes our lives look different? 
I hope not. I hope it's Christ. I hope it's that light. I hope that's the thing. Expectancy. Ministry empowerment. Extreme hospitality. Those are the things. 21 times in Revelation, that word, ergon, deeds, work, appears. In Revelation 22, Jesus says that he's going to repay each person according to their ergon. Okay, so I went through all seven of our core values in about 10 minutes. So, or maybe my watch is wrong. Maybe I took longer. And you guys are like, well, why did it take you so long all the other times? I don't know. So Ezra and Nehemiah, why were your sermons 45 minutes each? Ezra and Nehemiah, I told you I was going to go through this. So in the books of Ezra, it's actually one scroll, it's one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, what I'm going to do is I want to I do a contrast. See, when we're talking about smoke and significance, all of the things that we do, what we pursue as a church, what we, this new chapter that we're about to begin, what are we going to do? Why are we going to do it? See, we could come up with some great building project. We're like, oh, we're all in on that. We could come up with some great ministries that we want to be, oh yeah, those are awesome. Those are cool things, Pastor. We want to do those things. Because some charismatic person got up in front of us and really, you know, they pitched it, used car salesmen, they sold us on the idea, and we got in on it. And then we realized years later, it's like, what, what were we doing? That's why I'm thankful I'm not a used car salesman. That's not how I sell it. I'm not trying to sell y'all anything. I challenge y'all. Go back into Scripture. Be, be those noble-minded people that Paul were talking about. Whatever I say, go back into Scripture and challenge it. But in Ezra and Nehemiah, one book, there's three different people that it addresses. There's Zerubbabel. That's a fun name to say, Zerubbabel. Ezra and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel, his thing was that he was supposed to rebuild the temple. Ezra was trying to rebuild Torah community. And Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls, all at different times, all at different phases. And each time one of them did something, there's this huge anticlimactic... It just fades out into nothingness. If you read those books together as one unit, Zerubbabel starts off and he's all hard charging, and he's got, you know, he's excited, and he's going to rebuild the temple, and it gets to the place where they've laid the foundation. We talked about this last week. And some people were excited and they were screaming and then there were a bunch of other people that started to weep because they were nostalgic, right? And then there's these people who are the indigenous folks, the people of the exile that the Assyrians had imported, the folks that were from outside, and they intermarried with the Jews. The people who weren't exported, there were some folks who were left. And so they intermarried. Well, then when the Jews, the purebloods, came back, and they're going to rebuild the temple. And then these people who had been living there said that, well, we've been worshiping God too. And we've been making sacrifices too. And we want in on this. We want, we want to be in on this rebuilding project. We want to be part of this renewal thing that's going on. And Zerubbabel says, uh-uh. You're going to have no part with this. And what it causes is for these people to all of a sudden become hostile. And it creates opposition, and politically and religiously, they start putting up all these walls, and it causes the efforts just to spiral down. There's a period of, I think, about 60 years where nothing happens. You go back to, it's because of Zerubbabel's attitude towards these people. 
Was that God's idea? Was God's idea that there would be walls? We have to look into Revelation. What was it that Israel was supposed to do? Exodus 19.6. You're supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're supposed to reach out to all those foreign lands and you're supposed to reveal the glory of the one true God. And they'll realize the error of their ways because of the way that you live. Core values. Your beliefs. The things that you hold on to and the way they manifest as behaviors. But instead of doing that, they began to adopt those external practices. So when Zerubbabel said no, he was doing it for the wrong reason. Rather than saying, we're going to be a firm community fixed in the fear of the Lord and His love, and we're going to reach out to people, they were like, no, you can't have any part of us. And it began this protectionistic, exclusivistic attitude that carried on all the way into the time of Jesus. And when Jesus came along, and He challenged the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all of the religious leaders, the scribes and the teachers of the law, that protectionistic attitude the hair on the back of their neck stood up and said, he's challenging us. we got to kill that guy. So Zerubbabel failed. Ezra failed. See, Ezra was rebuilding Torah community. And what he found out was that the people, the Israelites, they had married outsiders. In that 60-year period, that between Zerubbabel, his fading away in that period of time before Ezra came back, they had already begun to marry these outsiders. God had never said you can't do that. He said it earlier on in Scripture. This is a new chapter. It's a new time where it's like God's trying to create renewal. And instead of being exclusivistic and protectionistic, God, no walls, reach the nations, be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The purpose that I designed for you from the very beginning Reach out to them. Show them how we're different. Show them your core values. Show them the love of God. Show them. And Ezra, because the leaders were pressuring him, and he said, all these people... So Ezra implements this divorce decree, and he says, you've got to divorce. If you're a Jew and you've married an outsider, you've got to divorce that person. And there's this kind of weird part in Ezra where it's like some of them do and some of them don't. And then it just kind of, it just fades out and that's the end. And you're like, okay, well, what just happened? And then you go into Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, several years later, well, he gets inspired to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And it sounds like a really great thing. I've been a part of a lot of churches who have been doing rebuilding projects. And what do they do? They go to Nehemiah and they say, this is, this is the outline that we use because it's inspiring. We're going to do this new youth building or we're going to build a new sanctuary. So we'll go to Nehemiah because he did it right. You're taking it out of context because if you read it to the end, what happens? It goes horribly. Were walls God's vision? No. If you look at Leviticus 26.6, God doesn't want... The, the, the tabernacle, he doesn't want it to have walls. He wants it to be a place where the light of God shines, all of the nations are influenced. It's even mobile, so they could take it. And then the temple is built in Jerusalem. Same idea, but now it's a fixed location where God's glory resides among the people. And they build the walls. They reject assistance. There's opposition, which leads to hostility. It develops a bunker mentality. Nehemiah leaves because he's got to go back to his job and then he returns sometimes later and he finds out
These guys have turned the temple into a hotel. There's people living inside the temple. People are working on the Sabbath. They're marrying outsiders. They're adopting foreign practices. And where Ezra had pulled out his own hair because he was so frustrated, Nehemiah starts yanking out the hair of the men, the Israelites, who have married foreign women. And it gets to the end of the book, and Nehemiah basically says, well, God, I've done my part, and that's the end. Anticlimactic, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. See, you can start off really well, smoke and significance. If there's no long-term vision, if you're not in line with God's word and his will, no matter what you do, desperate dependency, you're going to fail. Smoke and significance. So are we a church that's chasing a vapor, or are we visionary? Are we chasing that which is pointless, or are we going for permanence? See, next week we're going into Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bible with you, I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes. It's right there, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. It's in the poetic books. Y'all are probably going to get there before I do. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'm going to look at verses 1 and 2. It says the words of Koheleth. Some of your Bibles may say preacher. Some may say teacher. Koheleth, it's the leader of the assembly, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, which has led many scholars to believe that this was probably Solomon. There's some that doubt it, but most believe it's Solomon. And he begins and he says, Hevel of Helavim. That's in Hebrew. Hevel of Helavim. My HCSB says absolute futility. Hevel is smoke. It's futility. It's the idea of something that's pointless, that's worthless. It's like you try to grasp it and it disappears. Smoke or significance. Hevel of Helavim, said Koholeth. Hevel of Helavim. All is hevel. Everything in life, no matter what you pursue, no matter what you're chasing, no matter what it is, are you, ch are you chasing prosperity? It's hevel. It's smoke. Can you grab vapor? Can you grab smoke? It might leave a, a scent on you, like when you grill in your backyard and I come inside after making burgers, and Christine's like, yeah, these are really good, but you need to go change your shirt. Because you smell like barbecue. You smell like the smoke but I don't have smoke in my hand, right? Hevel of Helavim. What are we chasing? Prosperity, possessions, pleasure, work, power, prominence. It says everything is Hevel. And that's where we're going to leave it. We're just going to close the Bible and say, okay, that's it. Everything is everything's vanity. Y'all ready to close and pray? No, we can't leave it there. But see, that's where so many churches leave it. They leave it at this idea of like, hey, let's come up with some great ideas. Let's build a softball field. Let's build a building. There's nothing wrong with those things. But if that's your goal, if that's the ultimate destination, and it's not fixed in that long-term vision, Revelation 21, 22, that new Jerusalem coming down, the bride of Christ dressed in the works, the ergon, the deeds, the things that we've done to glorify God, See, Ecclesiastes addresses that idea of significance, endurance, perseverance, and purpose. Are the things that we're doing, are they of eternal value? I want you to turn in Ecclesiastes to the very end. 12. Chapter 12. And we're going to look at verse 13. 
Koheleth, this teacher, the preacher, the leader of the assembly, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is, it says the sof, the absolute end, the terminal destination, the conclusion of the whole matter. And then he says what's oftentimes not in our English translation, is he's like, stop, I've had, been at churches before where the pastor, the preacher will get up there and he's preaching and everybody's kind of, it's hot in the section, everybody's, he says, let us hear! Listen! Listen, this is the point that I'm going for. Fear God, know, love, have awe for God Almighty, Elohim, listen! And keep His commands. The fear of the Lord isn't, ah, I'm terrified. It's not a healthy respect. We said it's not like, you know, this is okay, this is a little bit better, this is a healthy respect, but I still got room for improvement. It's not that. The fear of the Lord is that it defines everything that you do because you know Him. He's erupted, not E with an E erupted, but an I, erupted into your life. He's changed everything, and now you have the fear of the Lord living inside of you. You have it. The fear of the Lord and to keep his commands. It says this is the coal, the sum, the fullness, the all of humanity. That's everything. Isn't that awesome? Everything. The Koheleth, this person who's a teacher, the leader of the assembly. Everything. So if you read that, you say, what is? I missed it. Listen. To fear the Lord and to keep his commands. Smoke or significance, vapor or visionary, pointless or permanence, worthless or worthy. As a church, what's the next chapter? What's the next chapter for Poetry Baptist Church? For a long time, y'all were like, the next chapter is, we've got to find a pastor. We've got a committee, we're searching, we're going through a year, two years, beyond. We're looking for a pastor. God provided I don't know why, but he picked me, and here I am. So we're going to go with that until he changes. What's the next chapter? This isn't it. I'm here. Ministry empowerment isn't the next chapter. Y'all are here. We've been holding down the fort for two, three years. You got new leadership. There's new blood. There's new vitality. We got new families. We got new individuals. We got new couples. We got new youngsters. We got life that's coming into the church. What's the next chapter? If there's no vision, if we got no mission, what are we trying to accomplish? Get them to come on Sunday? High five them? See you next week? What about their kids? What about their youth? What about them? Are we pursuing, winning, and discipling these people? Because if we're not, if we're just having a barbecue once a month and we say, come and eat with us, that can be the platform and the venue for it, but that can't be it. Because I guarantee they can go somewhere else. I'm not actually, uh, sorry, John. I was going to say they could go somewhere else and find better barbecue, and that's a lie. I almost said it, but I caught myself. They are not going to go somewhere else and find better barbecue. They can go somewhere else and find barbecue, but it's not going to be better. What's the next chapter? God has given us his vision. It's not our vision, but as a church, are we visionary? Are we visionary as a church? What will our mission be? To pursue, win, disciple, the lost, the deluded, the disillusioned for Christ and his eternal glory? Or are we going to chase smoke and vapor?
and it's all going to be Hevel. Hevel of Hevelim. I told y'all, I'm not up here to play. I'm not. Lost for 33 years. I'm not up here to play. I'm not playing Sunday. I'm not playing church. I am all in. I'm all in. As a church, are we all in? Are we all in? What's the next chapter? He's cast his vision. He's given it to us. How are we going to get there? Let's pray.